Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about Douglas Wilson's brand new satirical novel, Ride Sally Ride, available for pre-order today at canonpress.com. It's two decades in the future, and a Christian college student named Ace Hartwick has destroyed his neighbor's so-called wife, actually a sex bot named Sally, in a trash compactor. Soon, Ace will be on trial for murder. Pastor Douglas Wilson continues his cheerful assault on stupidity with this provocative new satirical novel. Wilson pulls no punches when it comes to hypocrisy, love, sex, and providence in contemporary culture. His darkly amused insights will either make you furious or make you laugh, or make you laugh furiously, but they'll never leave you bored. Get Ride Sally Ride today at ridesallybook.com. So welcome to the podcast. This is the podcast. If you've come looking for the podcast, you've come to the right place. This is it. Podcast episode 155. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about the coming election um, because this election is um, not an election where feelings run deep. Uh, this election is a, an election where the feelings run all the way down. We are holding an election in a um, polarized time. I don't think that America has been this polarized since the war between the states. Now, obviously, when you get to a shooting war that results in the death of 600,000 uh, soldiers, that's pretty, pretty polarized. But I would say, in some respects, even though we haven't gotten to the overt shooting war part, we are even more polarized than we were then. Because at the time, in the war between the states, Americans were, uh, although there were obviously regional differences and very profound cultural differences, many of which led to the war, Americans had shared a common uh, language, a common broad cultural heritage, a common faith. Both sides, North and South, were uh, ostensibly Christian, and al although the North, at least the intelligentsia in the North, were more drifting Unitarian and, and drifting in a bad direction. But still, the men who fought the war were overwhelmingly Christian. There was a great revival in the Confederate armies during the war. There was a great deal of commonality. And after the war, Reconstruction aside, there was generally um, a successful rapprochement where the uh, United States was, a, let's say, if we go a generation after the war to the early 20th century, to the time of the Spanish-American War, for example, there was one former Confederate general in the Spanish-American War who uh, cried out in the heat of battle when they were fighting, fighting against Spain, something like, come on, boys, we've got them Yankees on the run. So he's a former Confederate, but he's fighting for the United States. And there was a, in fact, 50 years after the Battle of Gettysburg, there was a big reunion of veterans of the Battle of Gettysburg at Gettysburg, uh, both sides. And, you know, it's quite striking that that sort of um, reproachment was made. Now, I'm not saying that it was a Jesus thing or Christian thing, although it happened under a broadly Christian consensus. There were, there were shared values. 
in the polarization that we're looking at now, I don't see any possible rapprochement. We're talking about two alien thought forms, two alien worldviews. There's the, there's the socialist, cultural Marxist, hard left view. And there is the, um, tradi- we'll call it the traditional American, generically Christian view. So the left is filled with uh, rebels. So people who are in high revolt against the God of heaven and, and everything he stands for. And then on the right, uh, you have a lot of people who are simply running on inertia. Uh, they've not been taught. They've not been equipped. They are doing what they're doing, oftentimes instinctively, but there doesn't appear to be any depth to their intellectual commitment to and understanding of what they love. They do love it. They love it enough to stand for it and fight for it and and uh, resist what's coming from the other side. But they don't know what to do tactically. They don't know what to do strategically. They don't know. They don't have their epistemology worked out. They don't have a metaphysical understanding. Bas- basically, this is because they go. They've gone to churches that have not taught the whole counsel of God. And unless we recover that, I think we're going to have. It's going to be a bloody mess. The socialists know what they think, why they think it. Uh, when they started to think it, and they're and they're committed to it, um, the the um, broadly conservative center right folks who don't like the riots, who don't like the BLM stuff, they don't like the cancel culture, they don't like all these things. But if you interviewed them in depth, saying now why don't you like them? I think it would be revealed that um, it's a it's a sad state of affairs. Continuing with the podcast, episode 155, um, this is our hamartiology section. Our word for this venture into hamartiology is boreos, boreos, and this is the word meaning dull. There are two places in the New Testament where Isaiah is quoted to this effect. The same passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, is quoted in two places in the New Testament. In the first, situa- in the first situation, the, the disciples asked Jesus why he taught in parables. The parables, of course, were intended for illumination and instruction, but that was not their only purpose. The other purpose was to harden and to obscure. So Jesus taught in parables because he wanted to teach the people. He wanted to instruct the people. He also wanted the parables to uh, obscure the truth for another group of people, for another uh, set of people. And uh, so, the, so the disciples that asked, why do you teach in parables? And then in Matthew 13, 13, 15, Jesus says this, quoting Isaiah 6, For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing. There's our word. Their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. So the parables were to reveal dullness and harden dullness. And the parables had this effect prior to the great events of the Passion Week, where Jesus died and was buried and rose again from the dead. But years later, at the end of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul encountered the same thing, and he responded to it by citing the same passage. For the heart of this people is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing. There it is again. And their eyes have they closed, lest lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, 
and should be converted, and I should heal them. Acts 28. 27. You remember that Paul, at the end of the book of Acts, is under house arrest, and various uh, Jewish uh, scholars, Jewish rabbis come to meet with him, and he goes over everything in Scripture. And this is, remember, the uh, Jewish response, the unbelieving Jewish response to the Lord began when he was just teaching parables. They were dull of hearing. And then after he died on the cross and rose again from the dead, the dullness was still very much operative. Now, in in Scripture, there's a kind of stupidity, there's a kind of stupor, there's a kind of folly or dullness that is a moral issue. It's it's not a matter of IQ. Some of the smartest people in the world have this kind of a folly problem. They can't see the most obvious things. When you're talking to a Darwinian atheist, and you're both looking at a butterfly's wing, And then as soon as you're done looking at the butterfly wing, you look at the dragonfly wing, and then you look at the bat wing, and then you look at uh, the housefly's wing, and then you look at a condor's wing, and then you look at an eagle's wing, and then you look at a robin's wing. And he's just saying, uh, well, this all evolved by blind chance. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And he's brilliant. He can be twice as smart as you and yet not be able to see that what he's maintaining there is incoherent. Well, that kind of spiritual dullness is a spiritual problem. It's a moral problem. It is an ethical issue. It's not, uh, the person's not smart enough. So, boreas is the word meaning dull, and uh, this is a good example of how that kind of dullness is itself a sin, and it is also God's judgment, God's continued judgment on sin. If you sin by being dull, God may judge you by making you more dull. And he might make you more dull by telling you a parable. So our book review for this uh, podcast, we're on uh, episode 155. The book review here is uh, The Art of Divine Contentment by Thomas Watson. The Art of Divine uh, Contentment by Thomas Watson. Now, the Puritans are great, and I have to say that out of all the Puritans, my favorite Puritan writer is Thomas Watson. I've read a small boatload of his, uh, his books, and uh, the, the Puritans were highly educated, very disciplined, uh, vastly learned. But Thomas Watson is my favorite because I think that he is the— uh, most vivid or the most colorful or the most pithy of all the uh, Puritan writers. He, he's just wonderful that way. And this book, I, I've read the book years ago, and then I just recently uh, listened to it again. The two great books on contentment from the Puritans would be uh, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, who was one of the Westminster theologians, one of the Westminster divines at the Westminster Assembly. He wrote The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which is thicker and beefier than this one. The Art of Divine Contentment by Thomas Watson is a smaller book, but again, pithy to the point and really good. Now, the reason that uh, the Puritans were so good is they, well, this is many, there are many reasons, but the Puritans on this topic were very good because uh, they had a rock-solid assurance of God's sovereignty. In other words, nobody, when you're trying to comfort someone or when you're trying to 
encourage yourself or you're trying to get to a place of divine contentment. You never have to grapple with the possibility that there's no purpose, there's no meaning to this, that I just got caught in the machinery. If God is sovereign and if God orchestrates everything, if God numbers the hairs on our head and not a bird can fall, fall to the ground, not, not one cat can catch one bird apart from the will of the Father, if every motion, if every atom, if every molecule is in the palm of God, then surely the difficult Tuesday afternoon that you're having is something that he is in control of. He is giving you. It's, it's under his sovereignty. Uh, Watson says in one place that, I'm, I don't, don't remember if it's from this book, but Watson says that we sometimes focus on who brings the trial to us instead of remembering who sent the trial to us. So for, for the Puritans, because they believed in divine sovereignty, they believed that everything was assigned to us by God. It was God's will. It was God's purpose. It was God's intention that we be going through this particular uh, trial today. And so, consequently, that means that even though you don't know the purpose of this trial, you know that there is a purpose. You, you don't ever have to grapple with the possibility of this just being meaningless suffering. People can go through a lot. Uh, people can endure a lot if they know that there's a point. If they think it's pointless, <laughs> so if you come down with a painful disease or if you've had a terrible injury or there's a loss in your family and you sit down to talk to yourself, you sit down to counsel yourself, and if you're in that position, I would recommend that you get The Art of Divine Contentment by Thomas Watson and read through it, and then The Rare Jewel by Jeremiah Burroughs. When you get to that point, you have to ask yourself, let me just game this out in a very simple binary way. This trial that I'm going through, does it have a point? Or is it pointless? If it's pointless, then the only thing you can do is endure it and become cynical. If it's got a point, then what you need to do is endure it patiently with contentment, looking forward to the day when the point will be revealed, when you will come into the Father's presence and see how the worst things that you had to go through were actually some of the best things, some of the most um, character-building things, as, as Paul says, teaches in Romans chapter 5. So, Thomas Watson, The Art of Divine Contentment. If you're going through a trial, if you're going through a difficult time, if this is a hard stretch, I recommend this book. <laughs>